Hello, Corvo. Your life has taken a turn, has it not? The Empress is dead. Her precious daughter Emily is lost somewhere in the city, and you will play a pivotal role in the days to come. For this, I have chosen you and drawn you into the void. I am the outsider, and this is my mark. There are forces in the world and beyond the world, great forces that men call magic. And now, these forces will serve your will. Use this newfound power, my gift to you. and welcome back to the Footy Dashi podcast. I am Nicholas and I'm here with Lauren. Hello everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Lauren is here too as well as always, you know, cuz we do this together cuz that's why you guys come. You come to listen to us both be weirdos. <laughs> yes. <laughs> speaking, speaking of us being weirdos, this is the worst segue in the history of segues. Speaking of us being weirdos, um, I just wanted to let everyone know that we have added a new Patreon tier. We still have the the old Patreon tier where you can pay $5 a month to get, you know, the, the bonus episodes uh, every other week. However, we also have an additional Patreon tier now called Fudidashi Classroom. We might change it in the future, but I had to have something when, when I set it up. So that's what I decided to call it. Anyway, so that tier is, it's, it's a lot of things. So one, you will get all of the, the lower tier benefits as well. So you will also get the, you know, the additional episodes every other week. Um, but in addition to that, we also have another series of episodes that are more designed like a course. And so the first course or series of lessons that we're going to be doing are primarily me on character and identity. And so I'll be going through um, a series of various game examples. The first one is um, on, about SOTOR and about the so-called the paper doll system that exists in role-playing games and how that sort of got a broader, I don't know, ideology underlying it. That will be a, or as of the, re <laughs> sorry, we're recording this at a weird time. <laughs> that, the, that episode will have gone out as a bonus. So that way you can have it as, you know, it's a little sample, like, you know, those, um, it's like going to Costco. There are many things at Costco, but there are only a few things that are sampled. But the sample things are always very delicious and you should try them. I don't know why I'm making this comparison. Anyway, the point is, so there is a series of lessons that you can listen to. They are also recorded as podcasts. But that tier will also give you access to our Discord server where you can come and interact directly with Lauren and myself, uh, ask us questions about, you know, the various episodes that we put up, interact, like try to work out thoughts, tell us why we're wrong. We'll tell you why you're wrong. We'll get in horrendous arguments, but then we'll have a cry about it and everything will be fine and we'll all be better human beings as a result. So that is the new tier. Uh, if you're interested, go over to patreon.com forward slash foodidashi for that and more. Um, but that's not what we're talking about this week, although I did have to do our version of the Raid Shadow Legends. 
ad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so for us rather than some Yeah, for us. Thing. No, I am really excited to finally be able to offer this to you guys. This is kind of the secret thing that we've been talking about with Secret Squad for what we really wanted to bring out into the world. And it's always about, for me, making kind of the biggest impact on people's lives, but reaching out to everybody for that. And something that's been, you know, kind of going in the back of our heads is why do we do this and how can we better serve the community and hopefully build one? So having that Discord server where we might have horrendous arguments or you might just <laughs> pop in to say thanks, that would be cool too. Yes. Um, anyone who has already originally signed up for the Patreon episode, if you're listening to this um, or you're already our patrons, you have already been grandfathered in. And as we work to get this Discord server together, you guys will already be there. But for everyone new, um, this tier is going to be $15 a month. Yep. And it is going to be such a steal once we get all of the content on there because you will have practically lifetime access, right? As long as you are subscribed yeah. to all of the course content. So we would love to have you guys grow with us and get onto the Discord now to kind of tell us what we should talk about in these yeah. courses, whatever you want to learn. I mean, we have a laundry list of topics, so it is very likely that what you listeners want to talk us to talk about like today will absolutely be influenced in the Furidashi classroom going forward. Um, but if you want to wait, you know, like a couple months, you'll have dozens more apps episodes to access. So it is going to be fantastic. Yeah. Um, either way. So that's my little hawk too, because uh, <laughs> we're both super passionate about it. And I didn't want to interrupt Nicholas's uh, ad there. It was very, very well done. I think we all need to just go into radio marketing. <laughs> you know, screw my full-time job. What is this? <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, I love my job. Don't fire me. Well, plus our, your, both your and my full-time jobs actually pay much better. <laughs> than yes. Radio so thank God we have those. Um, but in the spirit of being sort of like, more forthright with sort of like not just like presenting arguments to everybody because you know we're still going to do our usual thing where lauren and i chat about like important issues or topics that we think you all want to hear about um we also want to do more with sort of like interacting with the sorts of things that people are already producing and the reason why i bring this up is because i recently watched a video essay video essay on youtube that so the the way I was explaining this to Lauren earlier is that if this had been submitted to me in a class that I was teaching, I would give this person an A, but then I would also tell them exactly why I think they're wrong. <laughs> so it, it's an interesting um, sort of thing to exist in the world because arguments don't necessarily need to be like 100% correct or valid in order to sort of like spark... I mean, there are things that you can do that sort of like that you when you engage with it, that sort of like spark further thoughts and that move you closer to a perfection of your own ideas. And I really like this video essay because even though I fundamentally disagree with the argument being made, it did actually get me to think more consistently and more precisely about sorts of things that I already, in fact, believe and articulate them better. And that is why it is actually a good essay, despite the fact that I don't actually think the premise is correct. So, um, and I will link to it, obviously, in the, you know, the show description. So it's making an argument about the game Dishonored. And I strongly suggest you watch the, the entire video. It's pretty long. It's about 47 minutes. 
So, uh, you know, long, long YouTube video essays. But if you don't, if you don't watch it, Nicholas is going to at least give a little bit of a recap here. So we're all kind of on the same page for what the general argument is uh, that the video makes. And an argument is like a thesis statement back from like the high school and college writing that you guys had to do or are currently doing. Right. It doesn't need to be true. It just needs to make a point. It's not even that it's not true. It's that it's touching upon something, but doesn't quite grasp it fully. That is actually the fundamental problem. Right. So, so, so let's go ahead yeah. and re- recap that. Okay. So, so the video is about Dishonored, the original Dishonored. And it's about the, the, the communist subtext of the game and the way in which it generally addresses the issue of class struggle. So... If you've never played Dishonored before, as I had hadn't until yesterday, because <laughs> I actually played it yesterday for many hours. Um, so what happens is at the beginning of the game, you're this guy Corvo, who is one of the like elite guard for the Empress, and uh, this isn't really a spoiler. It happens literally at the beginning of the game. Like at the very beginning of the game, the Empress is murdered. Um, her daughter is abducted. And you, as Corvo, are framed for the murder of the Empress. And then all of the events of the game that play out thereafter sort of revolve around this central fact. Now, the thing about Corvo's position... So so Corvo starts off the game as part of a member of the elite in society. So not necessarily... I mean, he's not a rich character, but he's definitely of a particular social class that he then falls from as a result of being framed for this murder. And so then the plot of the game is very much focused on, well, one, whether or not you decide to climb back into that class, because you can, but you can also choose not to climb back into that class. In other words, you can help the people who are part, who are also part of the elite of society, but who have been outcast as a result of all of these events themselves and their struggle to get back in they're referred to as the loyalists or you can actually choose not to go along with them and you can do things that sort of like subvert their activities because you do actually find out some information about all the individuals involved in the sort of upper stratum of society that probably would make you not want to participate in what they're trying to do and so also there are moments in the game when you see things from the perspective of like the so-called villains or who seem to be the villains initially. And so you have to make a fundamental choice about what your social position is going to be. And so this person, Dead Domain on YouTube, thank you for your excellent video, by the way, uh, makes the argument that this is sort of a, there's a subtext there about how people address class. And like, in other words, how you as an individual understand yourself in regards to your social class and how you determine or how you make decisions about what you're going to do with your life as a result. Yeah. And the reason why I really liked re- like watch I was about to say reading this video. Wow, that's great. <laughs> the reason why I really liked watching this video, um, and I did actually have subtitles on, so I, t- I tended actually to read it because I can read quicker <laughs> than the video could make the arguments auditorially for me. Yeah. And so, so I actually did read the video, um, but that's a funny turn of phrase. <laughs> Sorry. So slight tangent. All of this to say is that I'm really excited to kind of look at this because especially as we talk about character and identity, you know, I always call it the avatar problem, right? Is that you are Corvo, but who you are as the player, you are bringing a fundamental set of beliefs and ideas to the game state and the game world, right? Yeah. In order to compare with, and the game has to also very 
conclusively immerse you in a world that has an idea of morality, an idea of choice. Yeah. And I'm really excited that Nicholas is starting to play Dishonored because this might be our new Bioshock. It is an amazing, right, first person. Poss- possibly, although there, and also um, there are some like, interesting relationships to and Bioshock. There are some, yeah, there are some interesting yeah. relationships here. And I think what's really fascinating for me is that this is also kind of an episode where we get to kind of go into that theory uh, an academia side of game design that you don't normally see, but that game developers actually do use on a practical basis that is kind of going into the morality mechanics, right, and the structure of Dishonored itself. That this isn't yep. just a political economy problem or a societal, like, narrative wrapper for the game. We're not talking yeah. just about narrative here. We're actually yeah. fundamentally talking about the choices, the actions that you as the player get to decide, right, within yes. the social structure of this game. So this is just incredibly fascinating for me. Yeah, so the the fundament, So what this video got me thinking about was this problem of it's very easy to represent politics in narrative. And I think... That actually, I mean, I think that is the aspect of the argument being made in this video that is 100% correct. Like, there is a presentation of class consciousness in the game. I do not disagree with that at all. Here's the problem, though. Is the game, like, what is, so the way I phrased this when I was talking to Lauren earlier is, there's a question that needs to be asked, what is the political economy of the gameplay? So, like, you can have the political economy of the narrative, its world, like, the choices that you're supposed to make relative to sort of, like, the political situation that your character is put in. But then there's this question of what do the actions that you are permitted to do in-game, what do they signify? And that is, I think, an unanswered question in this video. And if you do answer that question, I think it actually undermines the argument being made. Yeah, and that's that's... I don't know. And that's always the struggle, actually, in video game development is that when we look at the gameplay of our games and the choices we choose to include in those games, right, in the mechanics and the storytelling, yeah, um, or even like, right, the storytelling kind of derivations we have, right? Like the story starts out one way. And then as we play the game, we realize we need to change the story because players aren't going to be able to make those choices. Yeah. Um, and this definitely comes down to a lot of those more... I don't want to say um, moral choice games, but it comes down to more when you have like, hey, do you, it's like the, you know, Batman Forever problem. Do you save the girl? Do you save Robin? Like you can't save both in video games. Yeah. Or like you're the secret, you know, guy and you actually somehow figure out that you can save both. Or you remake your entire franchise's ending Mass Effect 3 and now you get, you get both. Yeah. Um, and I think that like that problem, right, is something that we struggle with kind of, not like daily, right? I mean, I'm not, that, that would be really intense if I was struggling with this problem every day. But <laughs> but I do think um, that there is a specific example that you can give us, Nicholas, right, in Dishonored yeah. to kind of break down fundamentally, like, here's the choice that the society of Dishonored, right, like within the framework gives you that it's this. But then as the player, right, does that actually match the say, yeah. political economy? So the the thing that I fundamentally object to in this particular argument is that the subject position that you are put in as the player is fundamentally an individualistic one. And this is true of basically all first-person games because that is sort of like the way in which the perspective and the gameplay situation that you are handed, like that that's the typical way in which those things are, are done. And I'm not faulting the devs for doing that because they're just like reproducing first-person shooter ideology writ large but where that becomes a problem for talking about sort of a communistic or a socialistic ethic in the game 
is that strangely, in order for you as Corvo to be this like super powered individual with like, you know, magical abilities at one point, but also like just the greatest fighter who has ever lived in the face of everything <laughs> that is actually fundamentally antithetical to a socialist subject position. So much so that like, if you think about the way in which the missions are structured in the game, every time you are brought in to do something, it's precisely because your allies are basically helpless to do it for themselves. So rather than, you know, th th think about it like the way in which this would actually work in the real world. Like if you wanted to build solidarity with other individuals, you know, you have to like mobilize people. You have to get as many people on your side. You have to like leverage everyone's talents so that way everyone's contributing. And so in that system, you in a more socialistic subject position, you are a part of a whole and the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Whereas in the case of what Corvo is doing, and this is, and again, this is not specific to Dishonored. This is a problem of first person games in general to empower you as the player, as the individual person playing the game, strangely, your allies and those who could help you in game have to be disempowered. They don't need you they don't need you in the way that a first person game would need the player if they were themselves as equally capable as you, the player. And so there's this weird problem where, especially in a game that doesn't have like a fundamental like multiplayer base, it, you know, it is a single player campaign. In order to construct a world in which that makes sense for the individual player, all of your allies, and you see this in Fallout, you see it in any game that is like this, where people are like, hey, join our team, but in joining our team, you are going to do all the work for us. That is actually fundamentally antithetical to a to, to communism, to socialism, whatever, however you want it. Like, I'm not going to get into all the various like kinds of socialism because that's, I no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> but the point is, is that if you look at games that have actually tried to sort of like make the gameplay look like this, a game like Tonight We Riot, which I also think is a bit of a failure when it comes to tr trying to represent this, but in Tonight We Riot, it actually has to de-emphasize the, the individual participation and you sort of like, your persona that you take on is the mob, is, is sort of like the gang of people moving through the world. And that is a problem that I think some people have actually thought about at the gameplay level, but when it comes to especially a mass market game like Dishonored, like the ideology of the first person shooter just gets inserted. And then it has a narrative. And this is actually, I think, an instance where the narrative wrapper term makes sense because the narrative wrapper of sort of a kind of like you are part of a lower class and you have to make decisions about like what it means to be part of a lower class, like that gets overlaid on top of what is fundamentally about sort of the like exceptional individual that is characteristic of, you know, bourgeois liberalism. Yeah. And I, I think what's really interesting to note about, you know, Arcane's Dishonored is that it really took a lot of inspiration from Thief. Yeah. Well, also Arx Fatalis, which is another arcade yeah. game. Yeah. No, and it, it took a lot of inspiration from like these kind of games that already had you as like an underdog of society, I guess yeah. I should say. Yeah. Because like the most apolitical way possible. <laughs> um, just because that was a lot of politics there. And I do want to yeah, give our yeah. listeners a little bit of a, a breather here. Yeah. Uh, and that like in the most apolitical way possible, like you have this underdog, right? And who doesn't love a good underdog story where you're coming out from like, you know, 
a position of where you may have had power, you're disgraced, and you want to get the power back, but you also want to get the the power of the position you had, not just in terms of like really cool teleportation abilities, right? Or being able to blink or, you know, shoot people with laser beams. Like you want the position of power you had in society. And I think this is a fundamentally human problem, right? Is that you always are a single player in your world, right? Now, there is always an individual. And Nicholas isn't saying that in order to make a more socialist-like game, we have to no longer have an individual, no, right? No, no, not at all. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is that the individual's power progression and the individual's place in the society as wrapped within this narrative and within the gameplay is that you are the savior, yeah. Exactly. Not only are you the savior of Emily, right? Which is the the girl, her daughter that you have to save. Yeah. yeah. You are the savior of the, the people that you are surrounded by yeah. because you are the only one capable of saving them. Only you, right, can change the fate of this world. And that's a very powerful position to be in. And it's a very like exciting position to be in from a narrative standpoint, yeah. right? The outsider, right, is a trope used all throughout video game development. I think we had a, actually did an episode maybe last year on The Outsider. Yeah. Uh, but, but where The Outsider can come in and can look at things, interestingly, we <laughs> use The Outsider to look at things objectively. <laughs> right? Qu- giant scare quotes around the word objectively there. And, yeah, <laughs> because as game developers, The Outsider as a and as narrative designers, The Outsider can go into a world and question things that people take as facts the perfect example of the outsider that everyone knows and loves is harry potter and i say (laughs) knows and loves also in scarecrow because harry right if harry had just been raised in the safety of the wizarding world he would have just been like i'm a great person his best friend would have been draco they both would have been in slenderman and then voldemort would have come back well he would have been rich like he is rich in that story and he would have been rich i mean he is very rich right yeah and he did not grow up like he would not have grown up impoverished or even if he would had he would have been resentful right because he's like well this is really my money Instead of being grateful, you see, there's a lot of things narratively that with an outsider kind of trope just happen from being an outsider. Having been an outsider most of my life, like I was always the new kid, I I very strongly identify with people, right, who have ever been displaced, who have ever felt like they did not belong, do not have a home. So what I find fascinating about Dishonored, right, this human problem is that it tries to say that there is a way for you to be uh, a socialistly liberal society right? Like, uh, or as a person, I'm sorry, but you contribute to society in such a huge way, right? That like, does the world fundamentally create like a community around Corvo, right? And like, I don't think the game does that in a way. No, not really. Because then you would have like, there would be different gameplay mechanics for that. Right. So so to break that down, for example, right, you are the individual, you're a power progression, you're assassinating people or saving them. Yeah. You know, morality. Chaos. Well, no, I mean, and, and that is okay. Don't so kill people. Right. Hold on. Hold on. But instead, it's not like 
the people that you save, right, now become a part of your base of operations. And now suddenly, like, all of your powers get a bonus the more yeah. people that are in your collective. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, if your commune grows and the people around you are stronger, well, now that the entire right world is affected because your like home base is expanding, like yeah. that is an idea, right, of the collective. Like I'm already using the word collective, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of all of the social dynamics that are happening, so I just wanted to kind of break that down. That those are the considerations, right? If that I was yeah. trying to make a socialist communist argument, you would have a commune of people. Yeah, I mean, so actually. I mean, you, you in many ways sort of like salt, not really solved, but sort of came up with a way to approach the problem in a single camp, single player campaign setting. Now, I think there are multiplayer solutions to this that are more obvious, but in a single player campaign, you could, st you know, you start off as the nobody with nothing, but then, you know, you go, you rescue, say, you know, the woman who's a cracking engineer, and then having her as an engineer means that she can then build things for you that make you more powerful, and then you can bring stuff back to her, and then maybe she goes, and you can send her out on missions, she recruits other individuals, and like, that then reflects how all of that works like that is literally how you know if you're into like collective political action that's actually how you have to do things like you recruit people and they recruit people and then together you work on things like that's how it actually works and that is why bioware is the best socialist studio in game development <laughs> but there there is also a multiplayer solution <laughs> to make bioware we're in basically every bioware game uh yeah because for... that's basically dragon age like that's dragon age origins right there like I just <laughs> me. yeah, but it was also in the original uh, Knights of the Old uh, Star Wars: uh, The Old Republic actually had a huge yeah. mechanic about yeah, how your yeah, companions yeah. would uh, would do that. Yeah, so anyway, it like but that those that type of ideology, right? Of your uh, of the mechanics and of the worlds that you were creating, right, are within the ideology yeah. of yeah. of mechanically and functionally doing that, right? It is not just a narrative wrapper. Um, or exactly. a narrative overlay. I think narrative overlay is the better term because it doesn't wrap content and package it nicely for people like yeah. like a book cover would. Does that make sense? Like this isn't like Fabio with a dragon and like the blonde haired blue eyed witch or whatever. Yes, yeah, like, rapper is the common term. Yeah, rapper is the common term. But I think we need to change that to overlay because yeah. truly Dishonored is a great it does have a lot of great moments of narrative and gameplay meeting. Maybe there are a couple of them we can like show as well or we can like continue yeah, on the actually yes just... there, there there is there is a couple see the problem with a game like dishonored and using dishonored as an example for this as opposed to say like any bioware game is that it has moments that reflect this and, and actually many of several of those moments are discussed in the very excellent video essay that i will link you all to but the problem is they're just moments like the basic structure of the game does not reflect this so for example there is a moment in the game where you you play slash experience the the opening scene of the game in which the empress is assassinated from the perspective of a different character in other words you see it from both sides and you see the the choices that that i'm, I'm trying not to spoil it so i'm describing this as vaguely as possible um so you see it from both perspectives and also in knowing a little bit more about that character's backstory and their life, you see how the position society has put them in just in the same way that the position Corvo has been put in causes them or sort of like pushes them to make certain choices in life that, that end up in these like, you know, tragic and or like 
difficult situations that they find themselves in. And so that is actually a good example of a moment when you start to see things in more collective terms by looking at it from multiple perspectives. But it's a moment. It is not like the fundamental core of how the gameplay works. In other words, you're not constantly shifting back and forth between, you know, there there is a there is a game you could possibly make. I actually can't think of an example of this, but hypothetically, you could make a game that centers around one particular event or like a short series of events, but you play that series of events from the perspective of each individual who is involved like that is another aside from like you know the base building system that or like sort of like you know let's build out the party that you see in bioware games that would be another way to approach the collective problem by actually like giving you the perspective of multiple individuals in the same circumstance so but then that leaves us with well, then what is Dishonored trying to say? Or rather, what does Dishonored say to us about like the individual player and, and sort of your avatar in-game, perhaps despite itself? Like, if it's trying to say make this argument about like class consciousness and it doesn't quite do it, well, then what is it actually saying to us? So the, the thing that I would respond to the particular individual who made this essay is that, like... Okay, I'm going to get back into sort of like the theory. So apologies, everyone. But Marx already deals with this problem, which is that like the there is no uniformity of the lower classes. The lower classes themselves have like fractures within them. And the reason why those fractures exist is precisely because of exploitation. There are people within the lower classes who may be exceptionally gifted or have a particular talent that those with capital, those with wealth can exploit for their own benefit and they exploit them by sort of like picking them out of that lower class and elevating them and corvo is actually an example of this corvo and also the other character that i mentioned earlier who i'm not going to name because it's a spoiler <laughs> like they they were both pulled from a lower class and elevated into a higher status because it was beneficial to the people who are empowered to do so. And you see that even at the beginning of the game. The reason why even after Corvo is imprisoned for um, you know, supposedly murdering the Empress, he is broken out by the first group that you get attached to because they want to exploit his abilities for their benefit so that he can put them back in power. There is a technical term for this that's called the lumpen proletariat. You can read all about it if you want. But the point is, is that there is a there are individuals within even the underclass of society that those who are in positions of power try to pull out. And that is the subject position that Corvo is in. And that also meshes much better with the gameplay mechanics that you are offered. Because Corvo has these arcane abilities. He is an exceptional fighter. He is the exceptional individual that then other people can use for their benefit. And then you as Corvo what you have to try and do is figure out how you're being used and then make a decision about which group of people who are sort of struggling with each other in the society you want to attach yourself to based upon your own understanding. That's actually what makes it a really interesting game is that it does have that awareness of um, class struggle, but it's not in fact approaching it from say the perspective that say like, you know, classic, like, you know, socialist theory does. I think what's really great about Dishonored is that it is self-aware, and you see this a lot in these types of AAA quality games made by larger teams, is that 
when you have political ideology, not just of your entire game design collective, yeah. right, of your entire team, yeah. you also have, right, the political ideologies of the audience members, right, your players that you're also struggling for. Yep. So I think that something to consider when you are doing these types of critiques about video games, especially when you're trying to tie it to a political theory, yeah. I could easily just as make a same dead-end argument for the capitalist and liberal for liberalism in Dishonored as well. Yeah. Because the exploitation of the exceptional individual in capitalism is rampant. Yes. And so I could actually say that siding with a certain faction in Dishonored actually encourages more capitalistic behaviors of the player and the capitalist society at large. And I think that I'm seeing Nicholas's light, eyes light up <laughs> because he just loves arguing in theories. Yeah. And I, but I mean, that's true, right? And I think that Dishonored is an incredible game because you live for those moments that you remember yes. when you as a player were doing what was in your self-interest and the game either went, hey, don't steal my apple. That's mine. Why would you do that? And you're like, um, I'll just put this back here because you're you're Link. You're not going to get in trouble for stealing an apple, <laughs> right? The, ga the game put it there and told you you could take it. And it didn't even have the word steal on it because things in Dishonored don't, do don't have that, right? Yeah. Because it is self-aware right, of the class dynamics, but it's not truly making an argument for or against any of those. It just allows the player to kind of experiment within it yeah, and to true, see yeah. what happens, yeah. right? So along those lines, I actually have a funny, I have a funny anecdote. So when I was playing yesterday, so preface to this, I have a nervous condition where like periodically my muscles twitch. It's degenerate it's fine i'm okay <laughs> but the point is that it does mean that periodically i have these little ticks and oftentimes i have ticks in my hands so sometimes i like accidentally click when i don't want to click because you know my hands twitch so there was a moment in the game when i was just listening to um, dialogue with one of like the minor characters in the loyalist faction and my hand twitched and i accidentally killed them <laughs> and, and the game immediate, just immediate game over it's like you know you, you have it, like literally you know the screen pops up is like you know you have upset the you know the loyalist plans game over would you like to start over from your most recent save and i was like holy shit <laughs> so it was a really it was a really funny sort of example of like how consequence works <laughs> i mean even though i didn't intend to do it, but let, let's assume that like i had intended to do it. like i was just being like a douchebag like oh i want to see if i can kill cecilia and you can in fact kill cecilia i was like oh crap and so it was a really interesting moment in the game where it reminds you it's like we we the developers know you we see what kind of player you could possibly be and we're going to put little things like in this game to remind you it's like yes we understand that you're a bit of a psychopath when you play these <laughs> games maybe you shouldn't be <laughs> and, and honestly i think to end on uh, to end on that note i truly do really appreciate that the arcane team dishonored if you play dishonored too there's also like the same sort of moments and I think for me, the critique I have of Dishonored 2 is that it doesn't do anything else unique to its narrative overlay to try yeah. to make a political statement one way or the other. Um, but you'll actually know that it is making kind of different political statements in Deathloop, which actually takes place in the same universe as Dishonored, despite being like a different genre of game. And I think that's also incredibly fascinating, which is another reason why we should use the term narrative overlay going forward, because yes, yeah. it is definitely an overlay on the existing mechanics. And so with that, I wanted to once again, thank you guys for listening to another episode 
of the Furudashi podcast. Don't forget about our new Furudashi classroom tier where not only are you going to get access to us talking about these things, but you're going to get access to the ability to figure out how you can also approach the same type of thoughts we use as a professional game developer, as in a professional academic into the real world on your own projects. So we hope to see you there. And until next time.